Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today we're talking to Rosamond Rhodes about her new book, The Trusted Doctor, Medical Ethics and Professionalism, which is just out from Oxford University Press. Rosamond Rhodes, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So what can I tell you? Um, I started out very long ago as a second grade teacher, um, and then I had my children and decided to go back to graduate school, which I did slowly. I went back to graduate school in philosophy, and I ended up doing a master's on Aristotle and Ross, ethics, and then my PhD was on Thomas Hobbes. And along the way, I... Uh, was asked to do some work at Mount Sinai, and I was one of their first ethics fellows. So this was a relationship between Mount Sinai School of Medicine and the CUNY Graduate School, where I was a graduate student. And just before I finished my degree, Mount Sinai decided to hire somebody, and they did a national search, and they ended up with me. So I've been there now for 32 years. And as the first person working in bioethics at Mount Sinai, I was called upon to participate in activities across the entire spectrum of medicine. And I learned a lot um, in areas from public health to surgery, from genetics to transplantation. And I was also involved in a lot of teaching and research grants and developed a broad overview of the field. And as I was working on the field, I started out really liking Beecham and Childress and um, Gert Clauser and Culver's view of bioethics. And then largely it started with 9-11. I started noticing that views that were expressed by Beecham and Childress, Gert Clauser and Culver just didn't match up with my experience. And the first big example was thinking about justice in terms of the aftermath of 9-11, and it didn't fit. And after with that eye-opening perspective, I started noticing one after another places where there was a real discordance between the accepted views and what I saw as ethical behavior among medical professionals. And I started writing different articles about different issues, and then I was asked to write an article for a book about Hobbesian moral philosophy. So I was given the specific task of writing about what Hobbes might say about medical ethics, and I put it together. There was a lot of Hobbes in it, and when I finished writing that article, the 
editor said he wanted more Hobbes. I put in more Hobbes, but I realized that if I took out the Hobbes, there was a whole theory of medical ethics, and that became the book. Very quickly put together a proposal for Oxford. They accepted it, and here we are. Well, for people who um, sort of have the good fortune to pick up the book, it is it, it, there something I haven't seen in a book really um, ever before is the list of articles that it's based on. And in, when I picked it up, I thought this must be a life's work, but it's really just um, work from 9-11 to the present then. Well, no, some of the ideas go back much further. So it, it really spends my 32 year career in thinking about and working with, thinking about medical ethics and working with physicians in the hospital and learning so much from them. Oh, in the introduction, you you write, I think that maybe that's why. Um, so, so the introduction, you write that what follows that the rest of the book will just, will quote unquote, feel like old hat to some readers, but quote unquote, seem like heresy to others. Could you say a little bit about why? So starting my academic career in philosophy, philosophers speak in a way that is largely, I don't know, unintelligible to people outside of the field. There is a very technical language. The way if you listen to doctors speaking, it's a lot comes out in Latin. And I had to learn, working as the only philosopher in the medical center, I had to learn to translate my ideas into the language of of ordinary people, smart, ordinary people. Um, One of the eye-opening experiences I had was teaching our orthopedic residents. So I, I did work with the medical students, the residents, the fellows, clinical programs across the spectrum. But these sessions with the orthopedic residents were co-led by Dr. James Capozzi. And we would meet at seven in the morning, once a month, every month in the cafeteria with about 20 of the orthopedic residents. And Dr. Capozzi was invited because of his interest in medical ethics to write a column on medical ethics in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And we did about 20 or 24 of these different articles. They're listed there among the background that led up to this book. So we would start with cases brought by the orthopedic residents or Dr. Capozzi from his experience. Um, He would write up the case description. I would translate it into ordinary language. I would write up our ethical analysis of it, and he would translate that into ordinary language. So it was a way of learning how a philosopher should speak to a more general audience. So I try to, for most of the book at least, um, avoid the philosopher lingo and speak to ordinary smart people who can get it. So That's why I say if the explanations should be clear and cogent and convincing and feel as if, oh, I know this already, of course this is right. But coming from a perspective of the view of common morality expressed in Gert Clauser and Culver's work and in Beecham and Childress' work, 
you'll recognize that it's radically different. So on the one hand, it looks like mother's milk or chicken soup, as my professor used to say. And on the other hand, it it looks like heresy. So um, l- let's talk a little bit about the heresy. Why is a new approach to medical ethics needed? The traditional approach to medical ethics that we get from Beecham and Childress, which has become the um, famous view that's the coin of the realm around the world. And I I know that it's coin of the realm around the world because I have these two big projects in Eastern Europe, and they all know Beecham and Childress. Um, and also Gert Clauser Culver. The underlying view that these authors express is that you take common morality and you apply it to medicine. So the view of common morality comes from Beecham and Childress's version. They look through the history of moral and political philosophy. They abstract from it four basic principles, non-maleficence, beneficence, justice and respect for autonomy. And you just apply that to medicine because it's just more specific applications of what everyone knows. And I look at that view from the perspective of 32 years in the field, and my reaction is, are you crazy? This has nothing to do with what is good medical ethics. And the book begins by giving a series of counterexamples, examples of where I think common morality allows something. Like, for example, common morality allows us to share what we know and what we see and what we experience with one another. You can talk about who put up Biden signs on their front lawn and who put up Trump signs on their front lawn and which restaurant you should, shouldn't should order fish in because you're likely to get sick and who you shouldn't lend money to because you won't see those, that money back again and who's going out with whom. So we share information. It's entertaining and it's useful. But in medicine, what's the rule about sharing information? It's don't do it. We have to uphold confidentiality. And if you look through the history of medicine, we find that commitment to confidentiality going back at least as far as Hippocrates. So it's something absolutely necessary for the practice of medicine, upholding confidentiality. And if you know the basic, the basics of logic 101, what everybody knows, it's the law of non-contradiction. So from the same premises, you can't get incompatible conclusions. So from the same premises, if you get the conclusion that sharing information is all right, and in medical ethics we say sharing information is forbidden, there have to, those conclusions, if they're logical at all, have to be coming from different premises. So that's what I call my first argument, the negative argument against common morality. And then um, the positive argument is somewhat different. It's about common morality is supposed to provide the rules for our behavior, our interactions with one another. And there are very good rules for the most part. They allow many things and they prohibit some things. 
But when you look at the practice of medicine, there are many behaviors. Surgeons, they cut into people and remove a pound of flesh. And medical doctors, they'll give you medications and they say, be careful. Don't take too many of these. It can kill you. So what doctors are doing are things that if ordinary people like me, if I did them, if I gave you some stuff and said, take this, but it's, it'll be good for you. And it was one of these poisons, doctors call them medicine. I go straight to jail, particularly if something bad happens to you. And if I cut into you and remove a pound of flesh, I go straight to jail. It's not allowed. So the powers and privileges given to a profession are things not allowed by common morality. If they're not allowed in common morality, there could not be rules in common morality for how to govern those behaviors. So the rules of medical ethics have to come from somewhere else, and they cannot be abstracted from common morality because common morality says, don't do those things. Don't go up to a stranger and say, take, up your, take off your clothes and allow me to fondle you. Doctors will say, take off your clothes, I need to examine you, but the activity is the same. And for doctors, not only is it allowed, it's required. So those are the two general arguments behind the book. So those arguments, they they really sort of provide the basis for, for an ethics of medicine. So, you know, where, where do the ethics come from? You write that it has to be, that it, that the ethics of medicine must be internal to the profession in that it is constructed by the profession for the con- profession. And I wondered if you could say a bit about to the, the extent to which this is a new way of doing medical ethics. Is it a new, is it, is it a call for a, a revolutionary new way of doing medical ethics or is it a revival of older ways of doing medical ethics? Because you, you certainly do, because it, um, there are ethical, there's a, a uh, an appendix of, of various ethical codes and oaths and f- frameworks for professionalism um, included in the book. Yes. So I think it is both a new way and an old way of doing medical ethics. The old way is um, indicated by the Hippocratic tradition. So it's been going on at least for a very long time, at least 2,000 years and probably longer. And it's an up-to-date way because we see the proliferation of codes of medical ethics around the world. I'm only really fluent. I'm American, so I'm only really fluent in English. But I looked at the codes and oaths around the world, Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa. They all have documents expressing the ethics of the field, some are written in terms of code, some in terms of principles. Um, And in America and most of the English-speaking world, you'll even see codes and oaths and standards for each sub-discipline. So you'll see a separate one for the surgeons and the nurses and the pharmacists in each and every country. So it's, in that sense, it's new. And if you look closely at these codes and oaths, they do not resemble very much the four principles. They're much more specific and directed at doctors. And 
They're very, very similar to each other, at least in their main points. They differ tremendously in length, but they're very similar in their basic commitments. And what I think is really important is that from at least the time of Hippocrates, doctors recognized that they have to profess out loud, make an oath, show that they're using their distinctive powers and privileges for the good of patients and society, and make that very public so that they could be trusted. And that feature of medical ethics, of professing out loud, posting your code of ethics, your um, oath of to the profession and to the public, has marked medicine throughout its history. Now, ordinary people don't have to take oaths. There isn't, as far as I know, the oath of the barber or the oath of the baker, because those activities are governed by common morality. But the professions recognize that their moral commitments are different and require the trust of the public and that they have to be explicit and made public. So it's the profession that makes the code because they know it, they know what their responsibilities are and they know what the risks are. That's what I mean by coming from the profession. And then they have to explain it to the public. So I don't think um, that the ethics of medicine is outside of society's norms. I think that the ethics of the profession is identified by the profession and has to be communicated and explained to the public so that the public trusts you. And I, I think um, the recent COVID pandemic it, it has many, many examples of this. So right at the beginning of COVID, when it was important to flatten the curve so we didn't overwhelm medical resources, I didn't know anything about flattening the curve. I had never heard this term applied to medicine before. But the doctors got on the TV and the radio, and they explained why this unusual thing was really, really important. And for the most part, people accepted. We have to flatten the curve to prevent hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. So the insight comes from the profession, and then the profession has the duty of explaining it to the public and getting the acceptance of the public by showing that what they're doing can be done in a trustworthy way. That's a long answer to your question. But so the explanatory part, the kind of the 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 part about health communication, that is that the newer the the newer um a newer responsibility. I don't think it's newer. I think when you have Hippocratic doctors taking the oath and being trusted because they are part of the Hippocratic tradition, it's the same tradition. I think the big newness of my approach now comes in response to the 50-odd-year tradition we have of adhering to Beecham and Childress and um, Gert Clauser and Culver, the common morality view of medical ethics. So 
that became very popular with the publication of Principles of Biomedical Ethics and then Bioethics, those two books. And they have dominated thinking about medical ethics since then. So the newness is new in relation to current medical ethics thinking. Sure. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. I think I mentioned before we started recording, for the past week or two, um, we have been introducing first-year medical students to the basics of medical ethics. Um, and just this week, I, I had a discussion with a small with with a small group, um, and we had a handful of case studies. And then the students were to go through the ethics workup and try to resolve the case studies based upon the four principles, right? So we're teaching the four principles, teaching that they can be used to resolve different types of ethical dilemmas. Um, and the particular sort of uh, format that we used said, you should first consider the four principles and then consider virtues and then consider professional duties. Um, so if, if I had been teaching the, these four or five case studies using your book instead, how would that have looked, how would it, those small group sessions have looked different? I, I don't think I would start that way um, or, or, or do it that way at all. So Beecham and Childress are very explicit about their tolerance of disagreement. So using their four principles, I'm sure in your experience, you come up with students coming up with the opposite answers. And Beecham and Childress think that's just fine. But I think as a patient, when I go to a doctor, there are standards that I expect. So having taught in the university and having taught in the medical school, I think these are very, very different activities. So as the philosophy professor in the university, we want to let to support different people's arguments, their different viewpoints, um, let the plants grow in every which way. Um, we encourage just individual thinking and developing ideas. I think it's very different when you're teaching in a professional school because there we're focused on what you have to do, what you may not do, what kind of person you must be, what kind of person you may not be. And from the smallest behavior, I don't know, you don't want to shampoo your hair and look neat and clean, that's fine for ordinary people. But when a doctor greets a patient, they should look as if they care a great deal um, about the patient, about how the patient feels about them, that they appear as if they can be trusted. So you have to be clean, you have to be neat, you have to have clean clothes on, a very clean white coat, because you're try what you're asking the patient to do is bestow a tremendous amount of respect upon you, and you have to show that you are trustworthy. So it isn't like ordinary life where every view is terrific and great and can you can have it. You have to have certain attitudes as a medical professional. You have to be committed to confidentiality, to acting in the patient's good and putting their good before your own. These are pretty radical 
positions. And so going back to your question, where would I begin? I would begin with the idea of what are essential characteristics of a good doctor, asking students to recall their favorite doctor, their pediatrician, and what makes someone an excellent doctor, because that is what society legitimately expects. And if that's what society legitimately expects and relies upon doctors to be, they have to make themselves into that kind of person and start with those basics and then move to, so what are the duties of a doctor? What do you have to do and what do you have to be? Rather than um, asking them to express their views on cases when they have only common morality experience. So the basic difference in that common morality approach and my approach is we're not asking them to extrapolate from common morality into medicine. We're asking them to learn what the duties of a doctor are because they are different. So we take students into medical school because they've shown that for 22 years or 25 years, they've been exemplary people, but now they have to become exemplary doctors. And that means there is a new ethics that they have to learn a new way of behaving that they have to develop, and it's different, and therefore it must be taught. So I think um, medical ethics education in medical school is radically different from the bioethics course that we teach to undergraduates. I'd like to turn to the duties for a moment. Um, what are the first two duties? according to the, to the, your book. Um, and then how do the, the, the rest of the duties flow from those? Okay. So the first two duties that I list are seek trust and be deserving of it and use the knowledge, powers, privileges, and immunities of the profession for the good of patients and society. So I think those two principles or its sets of duties are the duties of every profession. I think of political leaders as being professionals and as justices in our courts as being professionals and the military as being professionals. And what makes them professionals is that society allows them specific powers, privileges, and immunities, meaning they won't go to jail if they use those powers and privileges, um, and then how to use them. So we start with the same two principles for each profession, and because the powers and privileges involved are distinct for each profession, you get specific duties that are different in each profession. And the duties for each profession will be the duties that that profession has to inculcate and embrace so that their powers and privileges can be used in a trustworthy way. So, for example, in medicine, I think truth-telling is really an essential duty. You're not going to be trusted if it turns out that you've told a lot of lies. People, patient will not 
believe that they should have part of their insides removed by surgery. They will not believe that they have to take this medication, which tastes awful, or keep taking it every day in their life, even when they feel healthy. Um, they just will be not likely to comply and get the benefit of the profession unless they really trust in the truthfulness of what you tell them. So truth-telling is an important duty in medicine. For um, the military, not particularly. So it depends on the profession what the duties will be and how they should be understood. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you use case studies in the book, because I already explained how, you know, case studies tend to be traditionally used and, you know, in bioethics education, here's a case, think about the four principles, figure out how to reconcile the principles. Now you do use case studies in the book, but they're related back to various duties instead of to principles. So I, the, 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 principles of common morality, as, as you call them. Could you talk a little bit about the role that the case studies play in the trusted doctor? Okay, so first principles. So I use the word duties. Um, Beecham and Childress, of course, use the word principles, and Gert Clover and Culver use rules. So all of them, all of those terms suggest that they're directing moral action. Um, I think Beecham and Childress use principles because it's more just suggestive and they're very tolerant of disagreement. Rules sound stricter and I use duties and the choice of the term duties is particularly related to views in political philosophy and philosophy of law and it's very strict. And there's also in moral philosophy this long tradition of thinking as of rights and duties as being correlative, and I'm trying to build upon that kind of language. So when I teach about a particular kind of duty, like truth-telling, I use cases to illustrate the importance of truth-telling and the kinds of different circumstances where it will come up. So um, in a medical ethics curriculum, I think you have to teach the different concepts separately um, in a way that allows the students to really understand what, it, what the duty entails and to be able to apply it to various different contexts. So when I teach, I don't just look for what's a an interesting case, but what do I need to teach and what kinds of cases will help me illustrate that point? So it's a different way of selecting cases and using cases. And because I want this kind of approach to be used in medical education, um, I provide many, many cases to allow whoever's teaching to use that approach. So it's intended in that sense to be almost a textbook that you could use. Take out all the, the words for the person who's teaching from it. The words are giving you the explanation and then um, 
try to teach the concept. So we do uh, ethics education for people who are joining our ethics committee at Mount Sinai. And at first I thought, oh, I could use the materials in the book. Um, I tried that once, and it was just much too much for many of our ethics committee uh, members to read. And it was also, even though I think it's transparent and simple, it was just too much getting into the weeds of philosophy. So I present it as a PowerPoint, and then there are the cases. And the cases, because they're chosen to teach the concepts and where and how they arise, um, people get to understand the concepts. So uh, I think the book is designed to facilitate a way of teaching medical ethics. Do you have a favorite case? I wondered if you could give an example of how the, the, this framework could help resolve a clinical ethical dilemma. These were in pediatrics ethics. I remember a baby who had a very difficult diagnosis, took a while to reach a diagnosis, and he had kind of metabolic disorder that made it impossible for him to digest certain proteins. And the parents, they were a young couple from a rural Mexican village. And this was a very, very, very rare genetic disorder. It didn't even have a name, but our genetics people were able to figure out what was going on. And they finally came up with a diagnosis um, that this was a condition that was ultimately incompatible with life. And the parents had been very concerned about their child, very committed, um, working with the doctors to try to make the diagnosis. And in the course of trying to take care of this child and working up the diagnosis, the, the doctors had found, identified one particular formula that was more tolerable to him than any other. And the parents decided once they got the diagnosis that this was a condition incompatible with life, they decided to take their baby home and they wanted him to have Similac, which is a commercial formula, which had been used back in their village in rural Mexico. And the residents became very, very upset because this was not in the, the best interest of their baby. And so this was one of the chapters towards the end where I'm arguing against the best interest view in medical ethics. I think it's a wonderful view for family members and patients, but not compatible with the role of doctors. And our young doctors, the residents on the service were very upset and they wanted to prevent the parents from taking the child home and feeding him Similac. And we had a whole ethics committee meeting about it. And what we recognized was that this was a condition that the child, no matter what you did, would not survive. And this young couple, they would survive and they wanted to have the feeling that they wanted to take their baby home to be in the nursery they had created for him. And they wanted to do what they thought was best for their baby, which was try the commercial Similac. And 
the difference between the very best treatment and what they wanted to offer was not going to amount to very much of a difference for the child. And we decided that there was a real duty to allow the patient to go home with his parents. Um, and, and the justification there is that we don't really have the, the authority to make these judgments about what is best. It's the medical authority to determine if something is unacceptable. So here were the parents committed, caring surrogates for their baby, and they were aiming to do what they thought was best, and there wasn't any significant enough benefit to, to override their choice. I don't know if that was the best example for answering your question, but it's one of my favorite cases in the book. If it should, then it's a great example. Um, so the book has has many of these cases, um, and it kind of goes through after those first two duties of medical ethics, um, fourteen other duties and cases that illustrate these duties and how they might be in tension or they might be resolved. And then towards the end, um, you you get to you you bring I I think philosophy comes comes sort of back into the um, the argument a little bit more and you talk about a doctorly character about um, sort of uh, how do helping helping professionals cultivate a doctorly character I wondered if you could say a little bit about that and how do, how does philosophy help you define that concept. Yes. Okay. So there's a long tradition of philosophy going back at least until Aristotle that talks about, well, you have to do the right thing. Doing the right thing becomes a lot easier when you have what Aristotle calls the right virtues. And there's been a lot of work on the virtues of a good doctor. And when you recognize that the duties of a doctor are different from ordinary people, also the virtues of a doctor will be remarkably different from anyone else. So ordinary people, you don't have to be that precise or thoughtful about what you say. Um, even the philosophy professor talking in their class, they can use language that is not always understood. but the, because so much of what is communicated to a patient is done through behavior and attitudes, those things have to be learned so that they work in conjunction with doing the right thing and they support doing the right thing. So there has to be a genuine commitment to caring for the well-being of the patient. Um, and a genuine commitment to showing that you're trustworthy and a lot of attention to the way you think about the words that you're going to say. Doctors are acutely aware of the way a patient hangs on every word that the doctor says, and you can choose the wrong words and end up with somebody getting the wrong idea or getting very upset or very hostile, and you need to avoid those 
those things. So sometimes it's important to use the, the patient's language. Sometimes it's important to um, take the time to try to understand what their concerns are and, and be the kind of person who the patient can trust. So with the 14 specific duties that I enumerate, there's also an attitude that goes with each of them. So for example, I talked about truth-telling. There has to be a deep commitment to truth-telling. It can't be, sometimes I'll tell the truth, sometimes I'll fudge it a bit. There has to be the internal commitment so that you feel uncomfortable when you're not being completely forthright and that you feel that you have to justify, at least to yourself, any exception. So if you decide to you get a di uh, something from the lab work, comes through and you get the answer on Friday night, and you know you'll have a lot more time to spend with the patient on Monday morning. So you might be able to justify withholding the information from Friday night till Monday morning so that you can sit with the patient and share the information and answer their questions. And if it's something really devastating, to console them and give them some hope, realistic, honest hope. So the kind of person you have to be has to be molded. So I think the doctor has to do develop an understanding of what his, his or her duties are, has to become the kind of person that's inclined to fulfill them, and then they're more likely to do what duty prescribes. And then there are the kinds of things that Aristotle recognized as very likely to lead people astray, no matter what their other duties are. Things like money and pleasure. And doctors, like anyone else, can be led astray by those things. And the doctor who is too money hungry is going to make decisions for his good rather than his patient's good. And the doctor who is too inclined to pleasure might choose to do something, do an activity that will be lots of pleasure for them, but takes them away from her duties to her patients. So we have, we need to pay attention to the character of a doctor as well as the understanding of the duties of the doctor. So the ethical framework that you lay out here in the trusted doctor seems to me um, to be, it's to overall be quite focused on the duties, the behaviors, the development of individual character of, of individual physicians. Um, but when, as you, when you get to the conclusion of the book, you do offer some thoughts on how the overall structure of healthcare affects clinical practice and, and therefore our ethical decision-making. I wondered if you could, could share some of those thoughts with us. I, in writing the book, I was very aware that it sounds, it can sound as if what I'm writing is express expectation that the doctor has these superhuman powers and so many duties that are just impossible to fulfill. And I recognize that our doctors today actually fulfill their duties 
very well, and they've developed structures that make it feasible. So you have many practices with a group of doctors where they take care of all their patients' duties, but they have a schedule so that they each get some days off and some time for vacation. Um, in our hospitals, it isn't just one doctor and one team that takes care of the patient. They have to be teams that share the responsibility for patients 24-7. And particularly in, when you have a pandemic and people are working very long hours, you have to recognize that there will be burnout. Nobody can keep going that way. Here we've had this going on for at least nine months, and there are going to be at least another six to nine months of it. We have to be able to maintain the core of medical professionals. So there are different modes of practice that we've developed that allow the profession to share the duties and get them all accomplished. So um, I wanted to acknowledge that I'm not expecting things that are impossible or superhuman and that these new ways of sharing re responsibilities are very legitimate. Well, that does, it that comes through. It certainly comes through in the conclusion. Um, Rosalind, we've taken up a lot of your time. I wanted to ask one more question before we go. Sure. Um, what are you working on now? Ah, well, there's a new book in the works um, about, what's it called? The Wiley book. It, it's about um, another way of looking at medical ethics that is more broad. Uh, so it divides issues of medical ethics into issues of justice and autonomy, um, issues, looking at the same issue as issues of personal morality, as political issues, and as professional issues. So for example, you can think about something like abortion. There's the personal decision of should I terminate the pregnancy or continue it? And that's very different from the issue of what should be the law of the land with respect to pregnancy termination and very different still from what should the doctor's duty be. So this book focuses on issues of justice and autonomy and in, divides into these three brackets. I'm also working on something about justice and um, vaccine allocation. And another project is about explaining roles and them from professions outside of just medical ethics as a broader overview. Well, wow. That's then, a, so, course, the, <laughs> so the trusted doctors, so it's the trusted doctor is certainly not your life's work. You have um, many, many other projects kind of in the pipeline. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. Thank yes. you, Rosemond, for, for coming on the show and for telling us about this, this most recent book, The Trusted Doctor, Medical Ethics and Professionalism, out now by, from Oxford University Press. Thanks, thanks again. Thank you, Claire Clark, for inviting me. It's been fun.